Has your life ever been going in a certain direction and then there's a game changer? Something happens. Maybe it just shifts the momentum just a little bit. But where you used to be going this way, now the direction of your life goes this way. I want to tell you about a story, something that happened in my life 25 years ago that was a game changer. A good friend and I were had, had dinner in downtown Calgary, and we were headed out, down, out of downtown. And I decided to take a detour. And our detour led us onto 3rd Avenue Southwest. Well, today, 3rd Avenue is a bustling business community, but 25 years ago, 3rd Avenue was known as the Strip. You know what I mean, girls, women standing on the street corner, you know, necklines that were too, too low, skirts that were too high, heels that were big, standing there, parading themselves, waiting for their next trick. Prostitutes. Well, what I did next, I am very ashamed of. As we turned on to Third Avenue, I turned to my friend and I said, Ha! Look at that one in the leopard skin coat. And that one, oh, she isn't even pretty anymore. She's just used and old. Look at that hooker over there. And I poked fun, and I jabbed, and I scorned. In essence, what I was doing was shame on them, but hey, you're doing pretty good. Now I had expected my friend to jump right in and to join my fun. But this was a game changer. She didn't. Instead, she said this to me. Rosemary, don't you ever make fun of girls on the street again. You see, that girl that we just passed on the corner back there, she's in my grade nine science class that I teach. And at 3.30 when the bell rings, she has a choice to make. Do I go home and be abused by my dad? Or do I go downtown and at least make some money having sex? That day on Third Avenue, there were two women. A young 15-year-old girl prostituting herself and me. A good Christian young lady. You see, I'd grown up in a Christian home. I'd gone to Sunday school every week of every year. I knew the books of the Bible by heart in order. I hadn't really given my parents much trouble as a teenager. I'd come to university, taught a Bible study. I read my Bible pretty, pretty regularly, thank you very much, and I was a good mem member in good standing here at this church. But I have a question. Who had a heart far from God that day? Martin Luther is quoted as saying, the curse of a godless man can be more pleasant in God's ears than the hallelujahs of the pious. You see, on the outer appearance, I looked pretty squeaky clean. There was a lot of things I didn't do, and there was a lot of things that I did do, and I probably could even qualify to be called saintly. Well, at least compared to my competition, the sinner. But at a heart level, who was in need of God's grace and mercy that day? The sinner? or the saintly. The sinner, the drunkard, the prostitute, the murderer, the adulterer, the child molester, did they need God's grace and mercy? We're pretty quick to say, amen, sister, on that one. 
But what about the saintly? What about the good, upright, standing, upstanding members of our community? What about the missionary that goes to Africa or the little old lady who teaches Sunday school for 25 years? Preschoolers. What about the pastor that stands here week after week? Are we in need of God's grace and mercy? We're not quite as quick to say amen on that one, are we? After all, don't our actions count for anything? Don't our actions count for anything? Well, that's the question in essence that the character in the story that we're gonna look at today from Luke 15 asked. Don't my actions count for anything around here? The story we're gonna look at is the story of the parable. Now, growing up, if you'd asked me, can you tell me the story of the, of the prodigal son? singular son, I would have told you it went like this. Well, father had two sons, and the young one was rebellious. He demanded his inheritance. He went off. He spent it in wild living. He was, ended up in a pigsty, came to a census, came back. The father opened up his arms, welcomed him back, had a big party, and they lived, lived happily ever after. If I had any breath left over after that, I might have said, and there was an older son that was a bit disgruntled. But the older son is not the one that we typically focus on in this story. And yet I think in doing so, in neglecting this member of this story, this character, we've missed a really important aspect, something Jesus was making very pointedly. And the reason I say that is it starts in Luke 15, chapter one, where the beginning of this happens, and it creates the setting for this parable. And I'm gonna read it to you, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So here's the setting. We've got the tax collectors and the sinners over here. They tended to follow Jesus. And I think it's because all of us are created with eternity in our hearts. We all have this soul craving to be in relationship with God. And so Jesus tended to gather this following of tax collectors and sinners. They were intrigued by what he had to say. So they'd be sitting over here, but at the same time there were the Pharisees who were the religious elite of the day. And they were following Jesus as well, mainly to keep an eye on him, make sure that he didn't break too many of what they prescribed being to be the important laws. So we've got these two different characters, two different sets of people, the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are mumbling. He even eats with them. Well, in that culture, if you ate with someone, it was the ultimate act of acceptance. And the Pharisees were outraged that Jesus did this with the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus heard the Pharisees saying this. He heard them muttering. And Scripture says, and he told them this parable. I know enough about writing that when you use a pronoun like them, it's to replace the last noun. The last noun in this story was, or in this sentence was, the Pharisees. So Jesus told the Pharisees this story, this parable. You might say, Rosemary, you're nitpicking about a pronoun. Well, I think it has an incredible importance because it shifts the perspective where we've put so much emphasis on the younger son. If Jesus was actually saying this parable to the Pharisees, the younger sons were the tax collectors and the sinners. The Pharisees were the older son. And that changes the way I think we should see this story, at least to give the older son equal time in it. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to read it together. And as we read it, I want you to, in essence, put on those glasses of seeing this parable through the eyes of the Pharisees and pay special attention to what is said as we read about the older son and what the older son says. So if you would stand with me, and we're going to um, read this together. I think it's very powerful to actually read Scripture. It goes in our eyes, it comes out our mouth, and we hear it, and a much better chance of it sticking. So let's read this together. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Please join me. Let's read it, actually read it together. Let's start again. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father, have I'm on the wrong page. That would be why no one's joining me. I'm like, am I deaf? What is going on here? Page five, page four, page three, page two. Here we are at the very beginning. My apologies. And you're thinking I've lost it. We'll come to that in a minute. Okay, let's try again. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he is back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your words. Thank you that your words were captured, translated for us to read, to soak in, to be changed by. Father, I pray that you would give us receptive hearts today to hear the truth of your word. Lord, I ask that you would use the words that I speak to be only those of truth, to only be those that you desire to be spoken. And Lord, we ask that our hearts, our minds would be alert and open to these truths. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So why did Jesus tell this story to the parable, to the Pharisees? And why did he include the story of these two sons, of both sons? What was it that he was trying to tell the Pharisees through this story? The Pharisees, you see, they were the religious elite. To them, appearances were most important. Appearances were primary. Even in our modern day English, the word Pharisee or Pharisaical is somebody who's hypocritical, somebody who's arrogant, somebody who keeps to the straight and narrow. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They taught people how to conform, to live exemplary lives so that they would be acceptable to God. They didn't have to be perfect. They knew they couldn't be perfect, but they could get as close as possible and certainly better than those other people. It's a lot like the uh, motto, if you run into a bear, you don't have to be the fastest, just faster than the next person. You don't have to be perfect, but get it better than those people for sure. To the Pharisees, appearances were primary. Well, Jesus had some very tough things to say to the Pharisees in the Gospels. In fact, I think it's safe to say he had the toughest things. He spoke the most directly to the Pharisees throughout Scripture. And here's an example of this, where he speaks to this idea of appearances being primary. It comes from Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. It says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Jesus never did mince words, did he? Kind of got right to the point of it. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. When we lived in Houston, it wasn't uncommon for the summer's days to be 100 degrees, and it was hot. We were ready to head out for a weekend. Somehow, a squirrel had ended up dead on the driveway. So I got the job of getting a stick and picking it up, taking it over the garbage can, dumping it in, put the lid on. We went away for the weekend, came back, unpacked. The last job was to gather the garbage off the bottom of the car. I did that, I went over to the garbage can. You know where this is going, right? I lifted the lid, whoa! The stench was incredible. That garbage can had become a tomb. And Jesus would say, that's what your hearts are like, Pharisees. That's what your hearts are like, older brothers. 
You look good on the outside, but you're full of sin on the inside. And if he was to stand here today and use our modern-day vernacular, he might say, your attitude stinks. So what was it about what was happening in the heart of the older brother? What attitudes did he have that Jesus found so offensive? Well, let's go to Scripture. Let's find out. Starting in verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us this, but I feel pretty certain that this was not the first time that this older brother had been angry about or with his younger brother. You see, during the time before the younger brother left, there would have been strife. This younger brother was rebellious. There would have been arguing back and forth. And even if the older brother hadn't been actively involved in arguing, just being in that environment would have caused anger to stir up. And then when he the younger brother demanded the inheritance and left. An estate that would have been this big was now half the size, where there would have been two brothers to take care of the father. There was now only one. And the actions of that younger brother would have severely impacted that older brother. And he got angry, and it grew, and it grew, and it brewed. And this is where it spewed, was right here and right now. He got angry. Is anger the problem? Is it wrong to be angry? Ephesians 4.26 says, If you are angry, do not sin. And it goes on to say, Be careful that you don't fall into sin. Being angry is not the problem. Jesus got angry in Scripture. We have many accounts of God being angry. So anger is not the sin. The sin was that slippery slope that when we, get on, we do get angry, then it turns into bitterness or resentment or revenge. And then we're in trouble because then we're going to be sinning. You know, the, the uh, little story of Sunday school class brother and sister were sitting there together and the Sunday school teacher had been teaching about the Ten Commandments and she wanted to do a review. So she said, okay class, who can tell me what is the commandment that talks about our parents? So the little boy shoots up his hand and he says, honor your father, father and your mother. That's right, good for you. Now what about, are there any commandments that talk about how we're supposed to treat our brother or our sister? And the little girl puts up her hand and she says, thou shalt not kill. There's truth to that. (laughs) And I highly doubt any of us have gone out and killed our brother and sister. But I wonder, have we ever murdered someone's character? Have we ever slashed someone's reputation? I have. And Jesus would say, you look good on the outside, but your attitude stinks. There are any other attitudes, the older brother? Well, let's take a look. Starting in verse 29. 
Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. What's going on here? The older brother is in essence saying, Look at my track record. I am the best son you've got around here. Look at all the things I've done. I'm steady Eddie. I'm reliable. I'm responsible. I'm obedient. I'm faithful. I, I, I. Have you ever noticed what the middle letter of the word pride is? I. And this older son just oozed with it. He was self-righteous, self-sufficient, Self-elevating, self-congratulatory, pious. You ever notice too that when we're building ourselves up, we often do it at the expense of someone else. We feel bitter about ourselves because we've pushed somebody else down. Look at all these wonderful things I've done, especially compared to that other son of yours. And this air, this sin of comparison where we feel superior to people. Ugh. And our attitude stinks. Have you ever noticed, though, that when we're feeling superior, it doesn't take very long to be like a teeter-totter where it switches and you start to feel inferior. And when we feel inferior, then what do we do? We tend to look at what other people have and wish that they had, that wish we had what they had. The older son, he's feeling superior, but he says, but, and I never got a party for my friends. And you get this superior, inferior. Feeling better than, wishing I had, envy. And envy, scripture says, envy rots your bones. Doesn't give you a skin disease, because everything's looking good on the outside. But it rots your bones. Comparison, that seesaw effect of better than envy, better than envy. Well, it wasn't too long ago that Jesus showed me just how rampant this is in my own heart, in my own lives. I was sitting at the airport. I actually had a Bible in my purse when this happened. Looking good on the outside. But in a span of one minute, I did this seesaw, the sin of comparison. And it went something like this. My attention was drawn to a mom with four little kids, you know, all kind of stepping stones, a 7 a.m. flight. They kind of blew into the, the area, kids all over the place, hair messed up, mother looking frazzled, and I found myself thinking, oh, lady, get it together. Like, can't you keep those children under control and at least brush their hair? You, it's really too bad she couldn't take my parenting course. And then my attention was drawn over here to the woman in a beautiful business suit. I bet she was wearing Italian leather shoes, business, in a lovely briefcase, standing in business class. And I found myself thinking, oh, you know, if my business was doing that well, I could travel business class and I could have shoes like that too. And oh, I wish I was like her. And then I was drawn to the three women that were sitting right in front of me. And I thought, you know, if that first lady, if her hair was just a little bit more like mine, she'd take 10 years off for it. You know what? My hips don't look quite so bad at, at 45. And then her laugh, oh, it just drives me crazy. And I no longer thought that, that I was drawn to the man beside me, listening to the conversation he was having on his cell phone. He was having a tough conversation, but he was holding his own and he was respectful. 
And I thought, oh, Rosemary, you're pathetic. You could never have a conversation like that. You wimp out on tough conversations. Don't you wish you, I so wish I was like that person. Do you see what I did? Comparison. I felt superior then, and then I felt less than, and I envied. Superiority and envy, superiority and envy. And what does Jesus say? You're whitewashed tombs. You've got a Bible in your purse, but your mind and your heart's amok. Well, what's the effect of both of these sins? What's the effect of anger? What's the result? Do you like to be with people that, with your, that you're angry with? Do you enjoy spending time with people who you really don't like because of the anger that's brewing in you? I don't. Imagine with me that you got an invitation to a beautiful banquet, and you thought, oh, I'm so excited, I can hardly wait to go, until you saw this seating, seating chart. And what you discovered in that was that you were going to have to sit between the two people that you like the least. People that you're angry with, people who have maybe hurt you, maybe done some terrible things to you. Maybe it's the business partner who left you, robbed you blind, left you bankrupt. Maybe it's the spouse who had an affair and took off. Maybe it's the uncle that abused you or the friend that slashed your character. And you had to sit smack dab in the middle of them if you were going to go to this banquet. Would you go? How would you RSVP? Would it be like the older son? The older son became angry and refused to go in. Hmm. How do we respond? What's the result of comparison and envy and judgment? We don't like to be around people. When we sense that somebody's envying us or somebody's judging us, we back right off, don't we? You know, Scripture doesn't say this, but I can't help but wonder if when that younger son was in the pigsty, in the pig pen, contemplating going back, I wonder if he thought, but what if it's my older brother that meets me on the road first? Will he give me a tongue lashing like I've never had before? Will he ban me from the property? I don't know if I can go back. I don't know if I'm welcome. Makes me wonder. I wonder how judgment and envy, superiority in my life has kept people away. Not just from me, but more importantly from God. Have my coworkers, my neighbors, my friends seen superiority and envy and judgment and comparison in my heart? And they've just backed off and not wanted anything to do with me or with God or with his church. I wonder. That's the effect of pride, the effect of anger in our lives. Matthew 23, 13, again, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees here says, your lives are roadblocks to God's kingdom. Tough words. Your lives are roadblocks to God's kingdom. You know, we have this scale of badness that we tend to to do both in the church but also in society. Some Some sins are definitely worse than others. Well, I want to read you a list of sins 
that are from Galatians. And as I read them, they're going to come up on the screen, and uh, let's, they're gonna come up both as actions and as attitudes. Here they are. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. We like to rank sins. Now, I've put these into the different categories of action and attitude, but in this scripture, they're all wound together, aren't they? And it ends, that passage ends by saying, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, not just those who live with the second side, which are like the younger brother actions, but this being the younger brother action and the older brother attitude, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no lesser than sins. The, old, the younger brother was no more lost than the older brother. Both brothers in this story were lost. Both were estranged from the, both each other and the father. There was broken relationships because of the sin in their hearts, both the actions and the attitudes. The older son was just as lost as the younger. And you know what, I wonder if even maybe a little bit more so because the younger brother acknowledged his sin, or the older brother, there is nothing wrong with me. So how did the father respond to his two sons? Well, we know from the story that when the younger son was a long ways off, the father hitched up his robes and he ran and met him. In that culture, a patriarch, an old man like this man would have been, would not have hitched up his robes. That would have been disgraceful. And even to run was disgraceful. So this father, to welcome his young son home, he was disgraced and he ran out, but he didn't care because he was so glad to see his son. But what we maybe don't realize is that the father also disgraced himself for the older son. You see, he was already in the banquet when this older son came in. The banquet was in full force, the celebration, the party. And in that culture, if you were the host of a party, you did not leave the room. You were there to mingle amongst your guests, to make sure they had food and drink, to sit at, at a time as prominence at the head table, but you did not leave. That's why you had servants. If there was a problem outside, send a servant to see what's going on. But this father disgraced himself by leaving the party and going out and pleading with his son, please come in. That too was disgraceful because as a patriarch, as an old man, you didn't plead with someone younger. It's much more likely that a father in that day and age would have said, you get your act together and get your buddy in there and put a smile on your face and I don't want to hear another word about it. But instead, Jesus says this father, he disgraced himself. He went out and pleaded with his older son, please come in. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus, a member of the Trinity up in heaven having a party and he disgraced himself and came to earth, born in a manger, walked amongst people, the people he had created. Why? To plead, please come to the party. 
please come. Jesus left heaven for both sons. And what was it that Jesus said to this older son? Verse 31, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. That's like an iceberg statement. It looks pretty simple, but man, is there a lot of depth to it. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. It's a lot like how what Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, where he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. We're invited to have an intimate relationship with the God who loves us unconditionally. You know, this older son, he didn't lose his sonship in this. This wasn't about becoming a son. He was a son. And God said, I am always with you, and everything I have is yours. The father's throwing a party, and we're invited to it. We don't have to plan it. We don't have to work at it. We get to be part of it. We have an opportunity for our relationships that are fractured and broken to be restored, to have peace in our souls. But the change comes from the inside out. It's not about getting our outside. It's not about getting our actions cleaned up. It's about allowing God to do the deep heart work to change us from the inside out. What happens when we allow Jesus to do this? What happens to that anger that's brewing and the slippery slope of bitterness and resentment and re revenge? When Jesus, when God changes us from the inside out, we're able to forgive. And if we follow the example of Joseph in the Old Testament, we don't just forgive, we go on to show kindness to that person that's hurt us so badly. Restoration is a two-way street. We can't control what other people do to us or whether or not they desire to be restored, but we can control with God's help what's in our heart. And if we choose to forgive and move on, maybe it's just speaking kindness about them or think kind thoughts about them. There will be a change from the inside out. What about this, the sin of comparison, of judgment and envy and superiority? If God changes us from the inside out, what does that look like? Well, we get a glimpse of that in the last verse where it says, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We need to celebrate people rather than pushing them down or wishing we had what they had. Let's celebrate them. The next time you apply for a job and you don't get it, it's the person across the hall that gets that job or that big contract, go into their office, extend your hand and say, congratulations, you're gonna do a great job. That's celebrating them. The next time a friend calls and she says, guess what, my husband and I have just booked a cruise. Instead of thinking in your head, that's the third cruise they've taken in 18 months and I still haven't gone on one. Say, that's awesome. I can hardly wait to hear about it. When you get back, I want to see your pictures. Now that's celebrating. Change from the inside out. 
And that's living the life where Jesus says, you are with me always and everything I have is yours. Change is available from the inside out. I can do the heart work. I'm not just worried about your actions. I want your heart. How does this story end? If this was a movie and I'd paid my 15 bucks to go to the theater, I'd be ripped off. It does not have a nice ending. In fact, it doesn't really even end. But I know that's very purposeful. You see, because each one of us have the opportunity to end it, according to our life. I love this picture of Rembrandt. You've got the father, you've got the son, the younger son on his knees, receiving his father's grace and mercy. And you've got the older son, stoic. I've done everything right. I've worked hard in this family. I have obeyed everything you told me to do but he's aloof, he's far off. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this was a picture book and we could turn the page and on that next page what we saw was the older son bowed before his father, the father's hand on his head receiving his grace and mercy. Wouldn't that be beautiful to see both sons kneeling before the father? And then we turn the page one more time and we'd see the three of them at the party together. The younger son has come to his senses. We've got a visual I want to show you. We've got the fa- this younger son who's made this curvy line away from his father. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> curvy line away from his father. But when he realizes his sin... He makes a beeline back to his father. On the other hand, we've got the older son who's lived the straight and narrow, but it still has taken him away in his heart from the father. And what we don't know is, does he come back to the father? Some of us here may be younger sons, and maybe we're on that curvy path, and what you've heard today, the Holy Spirit has been tugging at your heart, and you know you've got to make a beeline back to the Father. But in a church like this, my guess is there's a lot more of us older brothers around whose hearts are hard, far from God. You might be, have the Bible on your lap, but are we gonna come back? Are we gonna make, are you, am I gonna make a beeline back to the Father? Who's in need of God's grace and mercy? The older brother? The younger brother? Both. The sinner on that street corner? The saint in the car? Both. How do we get back to the Father? How do we get get back to the place of living out the truth of you were always with me and everything I have is yours? How do we make sure we don't miss out on the party? Admit, admit that you have sinned. I have to admit that I have sinned. You know, I'll be sitting in my chair early morning ready to do my devotions. I have my Bible open, I have my journal open, my pen in my hand, ready to, ready to be, receive from God. And there'll be this little check within my spirit. Oh, you, you need to confess first. 
So I go through the list, that list in, in Galatians, and go, adultery? No. Debauchery? No. Drunkenness? No. Orgies? No. Oh, okay, everything's good. And the Holy Spirit says, but what about that other list? What about the sins of your heart and your mind? The anger, the judgment, the superiority, the entitlement. There's nothing I can do at that point but get on my knees and go, oh God, forgive me. Be like David and say, search my heart, oh God. Test me and know my anxious thoughts, not just my actions. Test my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way, any offensive thoughts in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. We need to make our way back to the Father in humility, knowing that just as he had open arms for the younger son, he has open arms. He's pleading with us, come, come back. Come and experience what it's like to have an intimate, deep relationship with me where I cleanse you from the inside out. I'm not so worried about your actions. I want your heart. May we be a room of sons and daughters, a church of sons and daughters, of the Father who grab a hold of the Father's offer to live a life where we are always with him and everything he has is ours right now. Father, I am in need of your grace and your mercy. I've been here working in your church. I've been obedient to everything you've asked me to do. But my heart has become hardened, diseased. I need your grace and your mercy. I'm gonna give you a chance to come, to come and bow before the Father and receive his grace and mercy on your life. To come back into that place of intimacy where nothing is between you. I've been like you for 25 years, sitting out there in the, in the seats. And Pastor Henry or another preacher will say something, and my heart will be going like this. And then I'll hear them say, if you need or you want to come to the, to the altar, it's open. And then my heart will really start to go like this. And I'll think, oh, I can't go up. Somebody might know I have a problem. Yeah, I have a problem. I'm a recovering Pharisee. I have a problem. God, we thank you. Thank you that you are a God of amazing grace. God of unending mercy in our lives. That there is nothing that we have done, that we are doing, or that we will do in the future that can keep us from the love of God. Your grace is greater than our sins and that you sent your son to come in the midst of this world to invite us, not only just to be a son or a daughter, but to join the party. We stand humbled as the God of the universe extends a plea to us. God, I pray that the truths that you have burned into our hearts today would fall on fertile soil. The seeds would grow and take root and become strong plants of change in our lives. No 
birds would come and pluck them out. There would be no rocks. No one would stamp on them and trample them. Instead, your truth, your words of truth would ring in our hearts and minds and shift our lives. It would become a game changer for us today, Lord. Thank you. Clean us, redeem us, and fill us with your love. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the extravagant love of God and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of you. Go and have a blessed week. In Jesus' name, amen.